All right, turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. If you have one of our Bibles, uh, it's on page 964. If you need a Bible, you're welcome to take one of those black Bibles on either side of the room and keep that. There's a little page in there that kind of helps you understand that Bible, the translation, and gives you some helpful tips to start reading through it, not just by yourself, but with others. So if that's something you've never done, I want to encourage you to do that. Okay, if you have that Bible, go ahead and turn to page 964. Otherwise, we're going to, to, to John chapter 21. If you remember when we started John's gospel last September, so we've been in it for a while, we looked at the prologue, right, this beginning sort of introduction to his gospel in the first 18 verses of chapter one, where John essentially said, hey, here is Jesus Christ, son of God, and he's glorious. He's glorious. And then John spent the rest of his gospel proving Christ's glory by telling us about seven signs that Jesus performed during his earthly life and ministry, about his sacrificial death on the cross, and and as we saw last week, this ultimate sign, this triumphant resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Today we're going to finish by looking at the epilogue, sort of the conclusion of John's uh, gospel, and uh, here we'll see that John not only ties up some loose ends for us, but also looks to the future, and then ultimately and essentially says, hey, see, I told you Jesus was glorious, right? I mean, that's his bookends. Here's Jesus. He's glorious. Here's Jesus. Isn't he glorious? I told you he was. And we're going to see that Christ's glory is not just something for us to um, to behold, although it is. It's not just something for us to, to, uh, to, to be in wonder about, although it is. It's actually something for us to respond to, right? And so I want to pray that the Lord uh, takes his word and opens our hearts this morning, and then we'll dig in. Father, so grateful that your word is the same yesterday, today, and forever, because Jesus Christ, the living word, is the same yesterday, today, and forever your word endures and teaches us of your faithful love and compassion, your mercy, your goodness, your graciousness to us, your power, your might, your glory, your wisdom. We pray, Lord, that in all of these things, as we finish John's gospel, would you remind us that we are not finished with your word and that your word is not finished with us. Teach us not just about Jesus today, but teach us to follow Jesus in a deeper way today. We pray this in his name. Amen. Now, if you remember in the opening lines of John's gospel, he wrote this in chapter 1, verse 14. He said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth, right? Here's Jesus. He's glorious. And then last week, we read the purpose of John's gospel, why he wrote this. He said in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these, the ones I've written about, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. But here in these closing words of John's gospel, John is gonna show us that life in Jesus' name is not only about this eternal life to come, although that is absolutely part of that, right? Jesus has made that abundantly clear. Most of the time when we're talking about life in the gospel of John, it is eternal life. 
John's also going to show us that this life in Jesus' name also involves the ongoing work of Christ's grace and truth and glory in our lives right here and now, right? So here's the, the main point of our, of our passage this morning as we finish up John's gospel. This grace and truth and glory of Jesus beckons us to a life of discipleship in him, with him, to him, however you want to say that. This grace, truth, and glory of Jesus beckons us to a life of discipleship with him. We're going to see in the passage this morning that in Jesus' grace and truth and glory, he will reveal our ongoing need for dependence upon him, our ongoing need for restoration in him, and our ongoing need for obedience to him. So let's dig in this morning. Our ongoing need for dependence upon him. We're going to look at the first eight verses, John chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, which is the Sea of Galilee. He revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, which were James and John, and the two others, and two others of his disciples were together. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. We're coming with you, they told him. They went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. When daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Friends, your translation may say children, Jesus called to them, you don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. Cast the net on the right side of the boat, he told them, and you'll find some. And so they did. They were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. The disciple, the one Jesus loved, said to Peter, It's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied his outer clothing around him, for he had taken it off, and he plunged into the sea. Since they were not far from land, about a hundred yards away, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. Now, the disciples had been in Jerusalem for the Passover festival when Jesus' crucifixion and, and burial and, and resurrection had taken place, right? Right? Uh, Festival's over, and the, the other gospel writers tell us that after Jesus rose from the dead, he sent this message to uh, the disciples telling them that he was going ahead of them to Galilee. John has told us already that Jesus has appeared to his disciples uh, at least a couple times already. And so they returned to Galilee, and, and while they waited for some more instructions from Jesus, and they were still trying to make sense of, of all that had taken place, uh, these were fishermen, and so what did they do? They went fishing, Right? They still needed to eat, maybe still make a living while they were waiting for more instructions. The scene here is reminiscent of the one that we just read about in Luke 5 for our prayer time. In both cases, the disciples fished all night and they caught nothing, right? But as soon as they listened to Jesus, as soon as they did what Jesus said, what happened? They caught a miraculous amount of fish. But these are not the same story. This is not the same event. There are some significant differences between these two scenes. In Luke 5, Jesus was in the boat with the disciples, and they knew that it was him, right? But here he was standing on the shore while they were out on the lake, and they, they didn't recognize him at first. The Luke 5 account took place closer to the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry and well before his death and resurrection, 
But the scene here takes place after Jesus not only had risen from the dead, but had already appeared to the disciples at least twice. In Luke 5, after they caught the huge number of fish, Peter fell down at Jesus' knees, it says, his feet, recognized his unworthiness, confessed his sinfulness, and begged Jesus to go away from me. I am a sinful man. Here, as soon as he heard John say, it's the Lord, what did he do? He left all the guys behind with a giant haul of fish, tied his, uh, his outer garment around his waist, and just jumped in, swam as fast as he could to Jesus, just like Peter does, right? Just like Peter does. Jumped overboard without, without hesitation. The scene in Luke 5 ended with Jesus telling Peter and the others that from that moment on, their new job would be to catch people instead of fish, Right? Think about that. That was the beginning of, of, of his ministry with them. Closer to it anyway. That did not go away. John hasn't really told us about that. Luke told us about that. But that is lingering all along throughout this whole thing. Their new job would be to catch people instead of fish. And now here they are fishing for fish again, right? And at Jesus' words, back in Luke 5... These fishermen, they brought the boats ashore, they left everything, and they followed Jesus. And we got to see what that life was like as they followed Jesus through John's gospel. And here, after they brought the boat to shore, dragging the net full of fish, the disciples were reunited with Jesus. And what happens next is actually reminiscent of another scene that brought in a large haul, not only of fish, but also of people, one that we have uh, have seen in John's gospel. Let's read. Verses 9 through 14. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus told them. And so Peter climbed up and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Even though they were, there were so many, the net was not torn. There's another difference, right? Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them, and he did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. You remember back in chapter 6, when Jesus and his disciples were on the shore of this same lake? Maybe not in the same exact spot, but somewhere else along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. A huge crowd was following Jesus because they had seen the signs that he was performing When Jesus looked up and saw the huge crowd coming toward him, he saw an opportunity to test the disciples' dependence upon him. And so he wanted to feed the crowd, right? Which amounted to 5,000 men, John told us, plus women and children, that equals more like 10 to 15,000 people on this uh, shore of the sea. But all the disciples could scrounge up in that moment were five barley loaves and two fish that They commandeered from a young boy, right? And they knew it was nowhere near enough to feed that many people. But Jesus, what did he do? He took what they had, he gave thanks to the Father, and then he distributed the loaves and the fish to the people, and everybody ate as much as they wanted. And when when they were full, he sent the disciples out to collect the baskets, and they collected 12 basketfuls of leftover, of leftovers. It was another miraculous provision from Jesus 
This time on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, there wasn't a huge crowd of people. There weren't even all of the disciples there. John just says there were seven of them. And they'd been fishing all night. And this time they actually had more than enough fish to feed this many people. Now, on a, on a side note, there have been many attempts over the years to draw some kind of symbolism from the number of fish that John lists here in verse 11, but that's unnecessary, okay? That's more of a distraction than anything else. Listen, if, you, if you've ever fished, any fishermen in here? For real? None? Come on, don't be ashamed. Well, we'll talk about that later. Um, if, listen, if you are a fisherman or you know a fisherman, what do fishermen do? They, they tell stories. They count their catch, right? And notice, like, like, they'll talk to you about the biggest fish they caught, right? They'll tell you the size of the fish they caught. What did John say here? We caught 153, and they were all huge, right? He's a fisherman. Jesus didn't need any of their fish because he was already cooking fish on the fire, and he had bread ready as well. Breakfast was ready. And here we have the master yet again serving his disciples, right? Just like he did in the upper room. He told them to bring some of the fish that they had just caught anyway, because why? The Lord graciously invites his disciples to participate in what he's doing. He's also a loving king who serves his servants. He's the risen Lord of glory right here. Let's not forget that. And yet here he was, serving his disciples breakfast as a humble host. Now, certainly the scene would have jogged the disciples' memory of the feeding of the huge crowd on a similar shoreline, but but maybe it also brought them back to the upper room when they were alone with Jesus again in a similar way, and he fed them, and he washed their feet, and he taught them in preparation for his death and resurrection and ascension back to the Father. Maybe here as the disciples nibbled on breakfast and thought about how Jesus had provided miraculously yet again and all of these scenes were swirling back in their mind, these words from, from their Lord in the upper room echoed in their minds, remain in me, remain in me and I in you. Just as the branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, Neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit. Because you can do nothing apart from me. Hey, fellas, you don't have any fish, do you? Nope. Try casting your net on the other side. Remain in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus had promised early on to make these disciples fishers of people, and soon he would be returning to the Father and sending his Holy Spirit to live in them and enable them to carry out the greatest fishing trip of their lives, right? Where where, Where the net that they would use is the gospel message of Christ's perfect life of obedience, his humble and sacrificial death on the cross in the place of sinners, his powerful resurrection from the dead in triumph over sin and death and the devil, his glorious ascension from the dead or or, uh, from the earth into heaven where he would return to his rightful throne, the throne that we sang about this morning, and sat down at the right hand of the heavenly father and this gospel message of the hope-filled promise of his return to judge the living and the dead, to set all things right and to make all things new. 
This is the net that he's given them to use. This was not something that the disciples would be able to do in their own power or by their own efforts. The Pharisees also fished for people, by the way. They used a different net. And it was not a, a, a good one. It was a faulty net. These men were professional fishermen, and they couldn't catch any fish. They came up empty until what? Until they listened to Jesus and did what he said. How much more so then would that be true for them as apostles who were sent out to make more disciples to follow this Jesus? And if it's true for them as apostles, then it's true for us as disciples. We have believed in Jesus through their word. That's what Jesus prayed in John 17. Lord, I pray not only for these right here whom you've given to me, but for those uh, who yet to come who will believe in me through their word. We've been caught in their gospel net. We, we've just gone through the entire gospel of John. This is the net. We've been caught in this net and, and Jesus has taught now us to fish for people with the same net, with the same gospel message that his first disciples were sent out to proclaim. Jesus has graciously invited us to participate in what he is doing. But we quickly forget that apart from him, we can do nothing and we can catch nothing, right? Sometimes we're tempted to rely on more on business practices than biblical promises because we just want to see seats filled, and, and call that church growth. We fish, and we fish with faulty nets, and we wonder why we're not actually catching anything or why the fish that we catch seem to find their way out. Now, I'm not saying that there's, there's no good tools. I'm not saying that we should never take advantage of useful systems, useful tools that are available to us, but, but we need to understand that anything that focuses more as the goal on bringing people to church and filling the seats more than bringing them to Christ himself that has a potential to be a faulty net. We need to bring people to Christ. Yes, invite them to church. I promise you they'll hear the gospel here. But they don't just need to hear it from me. God has placed you in their life and they need to hear it from you as well. Bring them to Jesus. Use this net Why? Because when we use this net by design, we necessarily have to depend on Jesus. Cast your net on the other side. Okay. Do it here. Okay. Have you gone out and fished lately? Have you used this net lately? In his grace and truth and glory, Jesus reminds us of our ongoing need for dependence upon him. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Surely the disciples were reminded of this as they ate breakfast together with the Lord and their memories were jogged back to the earlier scenes of his miraculous provision. But as Peter stared at the burning embers of this charcoal fire, Surely his mind raced back to a scene that he would rather forget. And this brings us to our next point. In his grace and truth and glory, Jesus reminds us of our ongoing need for restoration in him. Look at verses 15 through 17. 
when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. And he asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. Now, the only other place in the entire New Testament where a charcoal fire is mentioned is a place that we've already seen back in chapter 18, where Peter was standing with some of the men who had arrested Jesus, and they were all warming themselves next to what? A charcoal fire while Jesus was being wrongfully interrogated by the high priest. It was around that charcoal fire that Peter denied his Lord for the second and the third time. Even though Jesus had risen from the grave and interacted with Peter and the other disciples multiple times already, the tension from that night in the high priest's courtyard had to be weighing on Peter's mind here as the familiar smell of charcoal filled his nostrils while they finished breakfast. You ever had that, like a smell that brings you back to something? Imagine having that associated with the guilt of denying your Lord. Jesus is about to change the association of that smell to the grace of the Lord he denied. I'm gonna, I'm gonna restore you, Peter. This is what's happening. John understands this, right? Like, like maybe you've been thinking about this. Like, yeah, Jesus is, has appeared to them, but what about this night, right? Peter denied him, and they, that we don't know. Like, how, how did that go, that conversation? And so John adds this here to tie up this loose end for us. And now, again, this passage, this is a passage where, where people have been prone to look more for symbolism than necessary because of the different Greek words that John uses for love here. We need to remember, though, that Jesus and Peter probably had this conversation in Aramaic, and there's only one word for love in Aramaic. And, the, and, and, and uh, John records the conversation in Greek for his readers, and, he, and he, he doesn't just interchange the words for love here. He interchanges sheep and, and lambs in a similar way, right? What's important here, what we cannot miss here, is the number of times that Jesus asked Peter the question and the number of times that Peter had to answer it. He had denied his Lord three times, and now Jesus was graciously restoring Peter by giving him three chances to reaffirm his love for Christ. This is, this is the grace of our king. Now, it had to sting a little when Jesus asked the question the first time. I think it's Luke's gospel that actually tells us that when uh, Peter denied Jesus and the rooster crowed, he and Jesus locked eyes. Can you imagine? Oh, my goodness. When I know I've failed one of my own family members and I see that sorrow in their eyes, it crushes me. This is the Lord of glory. So when, it, when Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? Surely Peter was thinking about that look on Jesus' face. In Matthew's account of their time in the upper room with Jesus, he records Peter saying, Lord, even if everybody else falls away, I will never fall away. You can count on me, right? 
In other words, I love you more than these. That's what Jesus was asking. Peter, do you love me more than these others? He's drawing attention to that, what Peter had already said to him. Is that true, Peter? When Jesus responded by telling Peter, tonight before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times, Peter doubled down in Matthew's account and said, listen, even if I die, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. Again, this has to be playing through Peter's mind as they're sitting here around this fire. But notice there was no, I told you so, Peter, from Jesus. By framing up the question this way, he wasn't reminding Peter of the guilt. He wasn't, he wasn't pushing his thumb down on him and rubbing salt in the, the open wound, if you will. He was reminding Peter of the truth of what happened. But he was also extending Peter an incredible amount of grace. Jesus knew, because he knows all things, he knew that Peter loved him. And Peter knew that Jesus knew that he loved him, right? That's why Peter was grieved when Jesus asked the third time. Peter answered, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Why are you asking me this, right? And even though he didn't say it out loud, surely Peter was thinking, listen, and you know that I did exactly what I said I wouldn't do and you said I would. You know that I denied you three times. You know that I failed you. Lord, you know that I love you. Look at how Jesus responded to Peter's assertions of love for him. Not one time after Peter said, I love you, did Jesus reply with, now you need to prove it. I don't believe you, Peter. Look at what you did last time. It's not what he said. Peter didn't need to convince Jesus of his love for Jesus. Do any of us? Jesus knows. He knows our hearts. He knows where we're at, right? Peter needed to be convinced of Jesus' love for him. This is what Jesus was doing there. So do we. We need to be convinced of this. And so after Peter said, I love you to Jesus each time, Jesus proved that he would never turn his back on Peter. I will never fail you, Peter. In fact, I want you to feed my lambs. I want you to shepherd my sheep. The good shepherd was entrusting the care of his flock to a man who had acted more like a hired hand, if you remember from John 7. More like a hired hand, or John 10, excuse me, than a shepherd himself. But Jesus loved Peter as one of his own sheep. His call for Peter to care for his sheep was a call for Peter to remain in Christ's love. Remain in me, Peter, and in my love, and my love will be in you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But because of me, you'll bear much fruit. So shepherd my sheep. I think it's worth taking a moment to trace Jesus' transforming and restoring work of grace in Peter's life. Luke records this conversation between Jesus and Peter in the upper room this way. Jesus comes to Peter and says, Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you turn back, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Lord, Peter told him, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I tell you, Peter, Jesus said, the rooster will not crow today until you deny me three times that you know me. Jesus predicted Peter's failure and his restoration here. 
Did you catch that? Peter, you'll turn away from me in denial, but afterward you'll turn back to me in repentance. When you have turned back, this is what it is. This is repentance. And when you do that, Peter, I want you to strengthen your brothers with the love that I've shown you. We saw Peter's failure in chapter 18 of John's gospel when he denied Jesus three times around, uh, 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 in the courtyard, twice around this charcoal fire. And here we just saw Jesus show his love for Peter by giving Peter three chances to reaffirm his love for Christ, one for each denial. All while Jesus already knew all of these things, right? And after many years of feeding Christ's sheep with the word of God as, as an under-shepherd of God's flock, listen to how Peter strengthened the brothers in one of his letters, 1 Peter 5. He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. Shepherd God's flock among you. This is what Peter is saying to these brothers. Does that sound familiar to you? Not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not out of greed for money, but eagerly. Not lording it over those entrusted to you. Shepherd my sheep, Peter. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Shepherd my sheep. Peter continues in this letter. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In the same way, you who are younger, be subject, be subject to the elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God resists the proud. Even if I have to go to death with you, Lord, I'll never deny you. Okay, Peter, we'll see about that. But he gives grace to the humble. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Humble yourselves, Peter says, therefore under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. Peter, I love you. Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Simon, Simon, look out. Satan is asked to sift you like wheat. Peter continues, resist him firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. And again, Jesus' words echo here. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And, when, and you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And Peter finishes here, God, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. To him be dominion forever, amen. Through Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I consider him, I've written to you briefly in order to encourage you, to strengthen you, and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Now, don't those sound like words from a man who was restored, established, strengthened, and supported by Christ after they ate breakfast together around this charcoal fire? This wasn't the last time that Peter needed to be forgiven and restored, though. Even after he was indwelt by the Holy Spirit, Peter once again let fear of man get the best of him, and he failed. And Paul rebuked him publicly for it, as we're told in Galatians 2. Peter wasn't done growing in Christ. Jesus never failed Peter. Peter's confidence in that as it is reflected in his final words recorded in the New Testament in 2 Peter 3, 17 and 18. It says, therefore, dear friends, 
Since you know this in advance, be on your guard so that you are not led away by the error of lawless people and fall from your own stable position. And here it is. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Peter wasn't finished. Jesus wasn't finished with Peter, right? Like Peter, we all have this ongoing need for Christ's restoring work in our lives and an ongoing need to grow in the grace and the knowledge, the truth of our Lord and Savior. We've already seen in John's gospel that Jesus completed all the required work of redemption through his death and resurrection. And so when Christ reminds us of the truth of our sin, he does, he does so not to make us pay penance, not to make us earn something that he's already given to us, but he does it to show us the riches of his grace. As, as Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we read earlier, the immeasurable riches of his grace and to remind us that our sin has already been paid for. He doesn't simply just sweep things under the rug or ignore what we've done. Instead, he confronts us, listen, with convicting grace and calls sin what it is. Sin. And then he comforts us with convincing grace and calls us what we are, children of God. And time and again, Jesus restores us and he strengthens us as he gives us new opportunities to express our love for him. So this is also then instructive on how we ought to deal with one another, right? If we're to to strengthen one another and encourage one another. And somebody who has sinned against you admits they're wrong and they ask your forgiveness. Have you ever answered them like this? Hey, listen, don't worry about it. There's nothing to forgive. There's nothing to forgive. Now, I've said that before on a number of, uh, of occasions. It's well-meaning, right? When we say that, we're trying to relieve the person of, of any guilt that they feel about what they've done. We sense the tension and we want it to go away, Right? But Jesus shows us here that there's a better way. There's a better way. When we say there's nothing to forgive, we're not actually dealing with the guilt. We're simply downplaying it, pushing it aside. And when we downplay guilt, we're actually in danger of short-circuiting the restoring work of grace that is necessary in that relationship how much more freeing is it not only for the person who wronged you, but also for you yourself when you are able to look at them and say, yes, you sinned against me and I forgive you because Jesus Christ has forgiven me. Truth acknowledges the sin that put Jesus on the cross. Grace points to the forgiveness that Jesus purchased on the cross and extends that forgiveness to the one who offended. And when the one who sinned receives that forgiveness, that person's guilt goes away. That's where it, it gets removed. And when that guilt goes away, guess what? We both grow together in God's grace and Christ gets the glory. In his grace, truth, and glory, Jesus reminds us of our ongoing need for restoration in him. And he reminded Peter of that need here in order to prepare Peter to carry out the mission that Jesus called him to. And that brings us to our final point. In grace, truth, and glory, Jesus reminds us of our ongoing need for obedience to him. Look at verses 18 through 23. Truly I tell you, 
When you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. When he said this, to, or he said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. After saying this, he told him, follow me. So Peter turned around and saw the disciple Jesus loved, that's John, following them. And the one who had leaned back against the, Jesus at the supper and asked, Lord, who is the one that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? If I want him to remain until I come, Jesus answered, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. So this rumor spread to the other brothers and sisters that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not tell him that he would not die. But if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? Back in chapter 13, while they were still in the upper room, after Jesus told the disciples that he was returning to the Father and alluded to his crucifixion as the, as the path that he would take to glory, Peter didn't fully understand what Jesus was saying, and he asked Jesus where he was going. And, and, and Jesus told Peter, listen, where I'm going, you cannot come now. You cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. And Peter asked him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. There it is again, right? And Jesus replied, truly I tell you, Peter, a rooster will crow. It will not crow, actually, until you've denied me three times. And now, after Peter's threefold denial and his threefold restoration, Jesus had another truly I tell you statement here for Peter in verse 18. And in verse 19, John tells us that Jesus was indicating by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. Hey, Peter, remember when you said I'll lay down my life for you? Here's how you're going to do it. You wanted to follow me, right? This is how you're going to lay down your life for me. So follow me, Peter. And in true Peter fashion, after he heard this new commission from Jesus and that it included death, death that he had promised to be willing to embrace himself, instead of affirming his previous promise to lay down his life for Jesus, he turned around, he saw John, he's like, hey, what about him? What is he going to do? What are you going to make him do? To which Jesus essentially replied, listen, my plan for John is for John. And my plan for you is for you. As for you, Peter, you follow me. You follow me. It's easy to get caught up in comparing our lives and our callings with other believers, isn't it? Especially when it seems like they're not really suffering and we are. When it looks like on the surface they have a better life than we do, right? You ever looked at another Christian and thought, man, how come they have it so easy? Or, how come they don't have to deal with this thing that I do? Lord, what about, what about him? What about her? We get so sidetracked focusing on whether or not things are fair in our minds that we forget what a gift of grace it is that Jesus would call us to follow him at all. We forget that we deserve condemnation. We forget that we deserve death, but instead we've been given Christ himself and eternity with him. We forget the call to follow Christ is a call to die. And yes, for some that means literal death, martyrdom, 
but for all, it means denying ourselves and living in obedience to Jesus for his glory. It's a call to follow Jesus to the cross and to share in his sufferings. We don't share all, we don't all suffer equally, but we all must suffer faithfully. This is what Christ has called us to. Our suffering is not for our salvation. It's not to earn something. It's not to pay Jesus back, right? Jesus already suffered and died to save us. Salvation is secured. Instead, he uses our suffering to transform us, to grow our dependence upon him and our confidence in him, to remind us of the temporary nature of this life, that nothing in here uh, or on this, on this planet will bring us total satisfaction to remind us of the permanence of his love and faithfulness to us and to keep our minds and our hearts fixed on the hope, the glorious hope of his return. So whatever our Lord has for us in this life, we can trust his plan because we can trust him. When he asks you, do you love me? That comes with a full assurance of his love for you. And a call for you to obey him. We all need to be reminded of our ongoing need for obedience to Jesus Christ. We all need to hear and obey these words that Jesus gave to Peter. As for you, you follow me. You follow me. Peter followed Jesus for over 30 years, carrying out Jesus' call to shepherd his sheep. And that whole time, Peter knew that this martyr's death was lingering. It's coming. And yet, Yeah, he stumbled along the way, right? But he was growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he carried out obediently this call that Jesus had entrusted him with. He trusted Christ. He obeyed his call all the way to death. Now, no one knows for sure exactly how John died, but we do know that he lived longer than any of the other apostles. He tells us right here that this was a rumor. It's not like he was... He's still alive and waiting for Jesus to return. We know that he experienced plenty of suffering in his lifetime. At one point, he was exiled to the island of Patmos. But John trusted Christ. John obeyed his call all the way to death, just like Peter. May the same be said of you and me as disciples of Jesus. Part of John's call of obedience to Christ was to write this gospel that we have now completed and to give his eyewitness testimony to the grace and truth of, and glory of Jesus. Let's, let's actually complete it with these final verses here, 24 and 25. This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if every one of them were written down, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. Imagine that. John didn't set out to write a complete biography of Jesus' life. He set out to reveal Christ's glory as the one and only Son of God, full of grace and truth. He closes his gospel by essentially saying, look, there's not enough space in the entire world, let alone here on these pages that I have written, to tell all that there is to tell about Jesus. But I've told you enough to prove my point. And everything I've told you is it absolutely true. John hasn't shown us everything, but here's what he's shown us in his gospel. That Jesus is the creator of all things, who is one with the Father and the Spirit. 
that he's the incarnate word of God, the perfectly obedient son of God, the promised Messiah sent from God, the true temple of God, the Passover lamb of God who suffered and died to save sinners, that he's the bread of life, the light of the world, the gate for the sheep, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth and the life, the true vine and the risen Lord of glory. In short, John has shown us that Jesus is God himself and the full and final revelation from the Father. In essence, John leaves us with this thought. You see, I told you he's glorious. I told you he's glorious. Now how will you respond to him? Through John's gospel, now you and I have seen Christ's glory as the one and only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The grace the truth, the glory of Jesus beckons us to a life of discipleship with him. In his grace and truth and glory, Jesus reveals our ongoing need for dependence upon him, for restoration in him, and for obedience to him. In short, our ongoing need for life in his name. For life in his name. So will you acknowledge your need and follow him as he's called us to do, or will you deny your need and live for your own glory. John makes it clear for us that true life is only found in Jesus Christ. So trust him. Follow him. Believe in him. May John's gospel be our gospel. May his net be our net, right? And as we live a life of discipleship to Christ, may we do so in such a way that others might see this grace, truth, and glory of this Jesus, that they might believe in him and truly have life in his name. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word. Without it, we would not know who Jesus is. We would not know our need. We would not know your provision. We thank you, God, for John's gospel, for the other gospels, for the entire word of truth that is scripture. We praise you for Jesus Christ, the living word. And we pray that you would help us to live in him, not simply to believe on him, but to follow him as disciples, growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ together, standing firm on the truth of who he is, beholding his glory, and displaying that through our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.